Hello, my name is Paddy Butler, and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. This week, I caught up with the author of Adventures in the Anthropocene and the first woman to have been awarded the Royal Society's Prize for Science Writing, Gaia Vince. Before that, just a couple of titles to tell you about. Well worth reading Gaia's new book, Transcendence, of which I'll be discussing with her in more detail shortly. But fiction-wise, quick shout-out about Marcy Domansky, a favourite of Roxane Gay. Her new novel, The Red Car, looks like it's going to be a page-turning belter. Not yet published here, but drop into Liberia and we'll try and source something out for you. Also looming on the horizon is a trove of so much good stuff, including The Discomfort of the Evening by Marika Lucas Reineveld and Red to the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson, both of which will be pretty massive in 2020, I reckon. But now let's head over for a chat with Gaia Vince. Gaia Vince, welcome to the Liberia podcast. Thanks for coming on and congratulations on Transcendence. Brilliant book. Um, tell us about it. How did it come about? Um, well, it, it came out of my last book, actually. So my last book was about how humans have changed the planet mm. um, and created this new era, the Anthropocene. Mm. And that got me thinking, well, how on earth did we get there? How did a smart ape become this planet dominating force? Mm. And to me, that's kind of the greatest question. Mm. You know, what makes us who we are? What makes us special? Why are we not the same as all the other animals? So I set out to answer that, you know, how did it happen? And look back on our type of evolution, how we diverged from the biological Darwinian evolution of all the other animals. Okay. And you start, I mean, you've got maybe four or five main themes, but you start with fire um, as a kind of a Promethean major um, step, I guess, in human capability and human evolution. Um, can we talk about that in relation to technology and how it accelerated human growth? Yeah. So, so fire, I, I, I picked sort of four elements which I think are key to our transcendence, to our cultural evolution, to what made us so dominant over the over the planet. And fire is really the way that we harness energy. Mm. So all life forms are limited by how much energy they can harness, how much, and that's generally how much they can eat. You know, plants photosynthesize, so how much can they get from the sun? And they're not that efficient yes. getting energy from the sun. So that's why plants are not running around attacking lions. Eating other plants and then eating animals that eat other plants is a more efficient way of harnessing energy. But we took it a step further. We harnessed an external source of energy and that made all the difference. So with fire, we were able to, for example, outsource our, uh, our guts um, the work that our guts do in yeah. breaking down our food. Yeah. So we could cook our food. We could also outsource the energy it took to protect ourselves right. because fire protects us from other animals. It protects us from the cold, all these things that otherwise we would have to expend energy doing. Yes. So it gave us time and energy that we could use in other ways. And one of the ways um, that evolution responded was by allowing our brains to grow bigger because once the fire did the work of the guts in breaking down our, our food, there was more energy. We could supply our brains with more energy so our brains could grow bigger. 
and that had all sorts of ramifications in in how we mm-hmm. in how we developed after that. And on a technical point with that, um, I suppose fire. I think, as you've alluded to, it kind of breaks down the the the, the, the toughness of 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 meat. So it kind of it allows our 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 our, our jaws to to it our jaws don't have to work as hard so it so, kind of so gives it breaks down, yeah so so it physically and chemically breaks down mm. our food so it physically breaks down our food um in in the uh well we we also use tools mm. right that's mm. the other thing which so we use tools to cut our meat so that our mm. jaws and our teeth don't have to do that work yeah um and we make our tools partly through using fire again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it also thermally breaks down our food so it, it literally does some of the digestion work yeah. it chemically breaks large difficult to digest molecules down into small yeah. molecules that can be easily absorbed by our bodies mm-hmm. so it's much more efficient yeah. eating cooked food gives you access to more calories uh, with much less effort. Okay. But it, just to go back to the jaw size, our jaw size would have been quite big before, but because of this uh, technological advance, it our jaw size decreases. And I guess that allows the brain to grow larger. Would that be a fair point? Um, well, the, the jaw size decreases. That's not really related to the brain size. Okay. But the jaw size decreases um, in because of two things. Partly it's cooking okay. because um, we don't need to chew so yeah. much. But but a lot of it is because we don't have to hunt using our mouths yes. anymore. Okay, right. Okay, like a lot of animals, mm. uh, the bite is actually really important. The bite is what kills okay. or maims mm. um, our prey. Right. But we use tools to hunt with. So we use projectiles. Mm. Uh, we're the only species that throws um, missiles, you okay. know, stones yeah. or or arrows or um, spears. Mm. Um, but we also we also use knives to cut our food. We use axes to chop. Yeah. We we technology takes that role that our jaws used to take. And once our jaws shrank, mm. that um, enabled speech. Yes, so that was right. really important stage yeah. of our development. That's that's how again Darwinian evolution, biological mm. evolution, mm. Um, was driven by our cultural development. So okay. once we culturally evolved different tools, mm. our biology responded mm. by reducing the um, the body's capacity to to um, do that same job. Okay, All right, brilliant. Now uh, the the. I suppose we're moving forward a fair bit, but 40,000 years ago, um, there's a famous um, Stadel lion man, which was found uh, on, on the banks of the Danube. And I can't, I kind of guess, like, obviously in, in crude terms, this is kind of representative of, our, again, another step in terms of, you know, as you alluded to, communication, uh tools for making, uh, I guess, votives or, or small representations. And I guess this is the next stage, isn't it, the, of human development in terms of language and, and communication. The, the, this small object, which is, I think it's the, the earliest uh, kind of representation of, of humans, by humans. Um, can we so, talk about Yeah, so... It's the earliest we found. I don't think it's yeah. the okay. um, earliest that exists at all, okay. not at all. Um, and it's um, it's sort of a representation of a human, but it's it's the lion man. So it's got the head of um, 
it's got the head of a lion and the body mm. of a man. So it's it's obviously um it's obviously nothing that people saw, right? Yeah. So they imagined it and mm. they made it, these figurines. And I don't think there were stages to this. Yes, there was yes, you know, our our anatomy had changed obviously earlier. Mm. But this development of um imbuing objects with some kind of spiritual agency or mm. um symbol or yeah, yeah symbolizing and decorating i don't think that came before okay. um other fire came first yeah sure okay. but i don't think it came before language i think it was part i think all of these things were concurrent and they made our species very different mm. so this is this is um this is something that humans do. We tell stories. Um, we we take natural objects and we give them meaning. Mm. And this this idea of meaning is is really important because it draws us together, and okay. that's key to the success of our species. We are cooperative. We collaborate. Yeah. Mm. We're we're hyper social, mm. um, and we collaborate with strangers. Okay. Now, other species don't do that. Okay. So ants all work together and bees and all this sort of thing, but they're all related to each other. So really mm. they're propagating their own genes, mm. essentially. Yeah. Humans are not working like that. We work with complete strangers. Mm. You know, you and I are sitting down together and having a conversation. Mm. We're not attacking each other. Mm. You know, it's, it's yes. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but this is something special that... that people are able to do and that gives them it, it gives them access to more energy because i can rely on you to do certain things um we can rely on our whole society to provide us with food and materials and safety and knowledge and all these things that make humanity succeed we can rely on all of that and we can only do that because because we are so social and our sociability hinges on us recognizing each other as sort of a pseudo family. And, and because we don't look the same, we're not related to each other, the way that we become this pseudo family is by aligning our values and beliefs and creating this kind of um, cultural cultural identity of a family which which involves saying that something is meaningful we all will worship the um lion man or um we will all we will all decide that this is this is the rule before we go into a house we'll take our hat off or whatever the whatever the social norm is these are designed and they evolve right everything we do evolves um and is selected for, but they were selected for because we all kind of agree to follow these norms, um, and that and that helps us identify each other as this kind of family, this society, this community. So it's really these sorts of things became really important, and we imbue everything with meaning. It's why we we decorate things to beautify them. It's why we decide to wear what we wear or. Um, instead of just making a knife that cuts well, we will carve something um, attractive into the handle. Yeah, and it, it, it seems to be, this is kind of a cultural accumulation, which is 
or cu- cultural messages which are passed down. And that's kind of quite key to your 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 overall argument within the book as well, isn't it? This is it, it's crucial. This kind of as opposed to okay, innovation is great when it happens, but it's it's almost this uh, transferal of stories and ideas down which help generations to grow one after and, and, and is so important important to survival. Yeah. So so with biological evolution, the genes are passed down mm. every generation and every now and again there's a mutation. And if that mutation proves to improve somebody's survival or at least not harm them, mm. it will continue, which is why some people have big ears and some people have small ears and some people have brown eyes and some people have blue eyes, etc. We have this great um, diversity um, of different ways of looking or different size livers or whatever. Um, it's exactly the same with cultural evolution. It's exactly the same. Nobody invented the like glass yeah. with water. It evolved gradually, you know, to to a structure that that worked. Nobody invented the idea of um, I don't know wearing a t-shirt. It, these things evolve culturally. Um, and that means, first of all, that we don't all have to be some sort of incredible genius that can invent everything that we see around us, yeah. thank Christ. Yeah. Um, but we can, we can just copy the latest iteration and rely on the, the collective knowledge of our group yeah. to have these solutions to various things. And, you know, little tiny iterations and improvements and combinations of two different things will come together to create a new thing. So, I don't know, the sweatshirt and um, the hooded jumper yes. come together to make the hoodie, yeah. right? So, so, so we, we it, evolve these things and, and, and over, over time we get this diversity. Right, yeah. But it, again, it goes back to that whole idea of efficiency as well. It's the... Con- collective brain, the collective imagination, working efficiently so that I suppose, again, the individual is not taking on this huge, massive energy because the brain, again, you go into that in the book, you know, the brain is this exhausting thing which takes up so much energy. Whereas, you know, if you, if, if, if you farm out to the collective, the, the, the progress progress is going to be a lot faster and a lot more exactly, efficient. Exactly. So with our technologies, we um yeah, we we outsource all our um physical labor. Mm. But with our our um societies, we can outsource our cognitive labor, which is so important. Okay. Yeah. It's so important. And then we've, you know, we've evolved even more efficiencies there. We have libraries, we have mm. the internet, we have mm. Wikipedia, we have all these different ways. So I don't need to remember who the King of France was in whatever. Sure. I can just look it up. Yeah, sure. So yeah. Um, that's, that's really handy. I, I'm, I've outsourced the energy of trying to remember loads of facts yes. to um, to our group held Dynamic. knowledge. Yeah. yeah. Um, stories. <laughs> Is another thing it related to that. Um, I think you, you cite in your books something like 20, 22 times. I mean, it's more, you've got 22 times more chance of remembering something through stories. That's that's quite stunning, isn't it? Why 
Yeah. yeah. So our brains are we our brains have evolved. So so our culture changes our biology just as our biology changes our culture, and because we have um, evolved storytelling as such an important way of transmitting this information because so when genes are transmitted you know we have sex okay and the genes are transmitted so with culture it doesn't work like that we have to have ways of transmitting that culture through the generations and around our um our societies yeah. and we do that through language but we do it more it's encoded in stories that's a, that's the most efficient way of encoding that information that can be passed on because and 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 as a result our brains are sort of exquisitely attuned to narrative they they love narrative and and it it's it's the most efficient way of remembering um something and so we see narrative everywhere and it has it has two effects that first of all it's a very um it's a great way of uh of keeping that knowledge in society um, in the most um, it's sort of high fidelity, the most accurate form. Um, it's also the greatest way of um, passing on that knowledge. Um, but the other thing storytelling does is it has this emotive element. So it's very good at drawing societies together, socially bonding, which is we've already discussed is so important in, you know, if you, if you only have a few people in your society, they can't hold much knowledge, yeah. right? They can't hold the solutions to all your problems, but the bigger your society is, the more you can outsource, you know, there's a efficiency with scale in terms of outsourcing energy costs, cognitive costs. And it also means they hold more knowledge. So, you know, if um, you're, you normally have uh, plentiful rains and stuff and so on, and then suddenly you experience a drought, if you've got a very small society, it's much less likely that somebody in that society has experienced this before and has knowledge or, or has um, been told knowledge from a previous time um, about how to deal with drought, where to find food. Whereas if you have a really big society, it's more likely that someone will have heard from another tribe or another group or from a generation story passed down from a great grandmother or whatever, and will hold the solution that your, your society will need to survive that situation. So the bigger societies and the more interconnected they are, the more they talk to each other and the more they communicate through yeah. stories, through gossip, through um, through formal institutions like classrooms and um, and the media, the more people um, chat and the, the larger the society is, the more fancier your technologies will be, the more likely you are to survive the... the um, the more uh, diver the greater the diversity of um, artworks and literature and music and all those sorts of things. So it's also a very predictive, I suppose, enhancing that predictive agency or that predictive quality that we hold or that we're able to, and well, enables us to negotiate these difficult times. And I, I guess the 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 kind of uh, investment in in narrative or the ability to narrate is, is quite a, a valuable thing within communities and i guess that's why it has evolved to, to that to that extent it's very valuable so they there have even been studies to show this mm. so in the philippines hunter-gatherers um, groups the agta um value storytelling the most okay. out of you know more than being a good hunter or being um especially physically uh, big or brave or anything like that. Yeah. So the best storytellers tend to have the most children, wow. for example. 
Um, and I think, I think that's, that can be seen in our own society. Yes. You know, yeah. we worship brilliant um, storytellers, you know, yeah. Margaret Atwood, yeah. Yeah. you know, film directors, um, or yeah. people who can tell a story oh, are absolutely true. revered. Yes. They're celebrities in our society yeah. because they entertain us. They draw us together in this sort of common appreciation of whatever we're talking about, the, the latest film or the latest book or... Yeah. Um, they're incredibly important. They ha even though they're not producing anything which feeds us or mm. um, protects us from the cold or mm. anything like that, it, they, it's a very ephemeral thing, but it's something that's vital to our society. And I guess like, you know, consciousness or the way we think or we've evolved to think is also like, well, we have this ability to place ourselves in these counterfactual imagine counterfactual situations and imagine situations from the past and the future as well. And I guess that's, that's quite um, an important, very important quality again. Yeah. It allows us to time travel. Yeah. So, so because of that, it means that everything doesn't take us by absolute surprise. Yeah. Um, when predicted. it happens, again, we can predict yeah. the future and predictions incredibly important to survival. So some animals um, instinctively have that built into their biology. Mm -hmm. um, they can, for example, there are um, octopuses in um, the Mediterranean that can sense when an earthquake is going to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. There's, there's, so there's lots of ways. You know, you look at the swallows that move south. Mm -hmm. They're not. They're not um, looking at their watches and going, "Oh, right, it's." You know. So so instinctively, they are able to make predictions based on natural phenomena. And if, for us, we we can't do that instinctively. We've okay. lost a lot of those abilities, but we have replaced them with other abilities, which is. Um, which is the cultural ability to use um, science and experimentation yeah. and those sorts of yeah. um, things, Technology. but also stories and remembering and being able to look back and see what happened then and project forward and um, see whether or not that would be appropriate mm -hmm. and um, weigh up different scenarios mm -hmm. and make a choice and make a choice in a group rather than just um, as an individual. Mm -hmm. And these are very, very useful tools. I guess something like standardization is crucial to that. So again, language to transfer the message in, 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 a, in a, I suppose, a succinct and cogent manner. So that it is, that's kind of key when we're coming into, I suppose, the medieval period, uh, I, I guess, you know, maybe in the time of Avicenna, the Arab world and transferring ideas from, from old Greek world. Um, could you talk about that in, in relation to that, yeah. that, so that as, period? As our societies grew bigger, so so the one of the strengths of cultural evolution is that we get just the same with biological evolution. We get these very diverse mindsets and diverse cultures and diverse ways of doing things, which is brilliant. But with that comes obviously diversity of language mm. and um, it means that people... Um, as our societies grew bigger, people from one group can't necessarily benefit from the knowledge mm. and the diversity of culture of another group if they don't speak the same language or they don't um, they can't read the same texts mm. and they can't um, understand 
they 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 are so diverse um, in culture that they can't actually understand the perspectives of each other. Mm. So um, as our societies grew bigger and as we tried to um, link up and <laughs> traveled and learned from each other, became essential to standardize. So to standardize um, uh, the language that was used across uh, science or um, across whatever literature or whatever so um so that i mean at the moment the standard language of science is english Mm. previous to that it was german Mm. but um yeah there was a time when it was arabic and Mm. the reason for that is that the arab world at the time was um was ruled by um by a very liberal-minded um uh, very liberal-minded uh, rulers, caliphates that that drew that was that was um, that understood the importance of diversity of people and mm. ideas and and had a sort of lust for for this uh, incredible diversity of knowledge and um, thought about everything um, from from map making to astronomy to to um, medicine to natural to the natural world and and actually created this huge library where he would send out uh, scholars to the far flung areas of mm. the empire and beyond you know to china to um western europe all around the um edges of this enormous arab mm. world and beyond to bring back manuscripts, manuscripts that would then be translated into arabic for this huge library that everybody the scholars came flooded into the city to 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 read and mm. to digest and to chat about and talk and and then create from those mm. ideas new literature and it was this incredible golden age blossoming yeah. yeah it was it was amazing it was it was particularly remarkable if you compare it to like the closest neighbor which was which was western europe which was mired in some um yeah. basically very uh, conservative sort of dark age essentially yeah. i mean literature was um moving forward a little bit the clock in europe i think is is you know a major technological innovation um and I think maybe the 14th, 15th century, 14th century, I, I guess, is when I think it, you, you talk about a certain uh, innovation with regards to the clock, that, which allows for clocks to become standardized. Um, is, is, that, is that the start of modern Europe in, 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 in your in your? understanding of um, it or is that I mean I think these are these are all phases I think I think what it did so our understanding of time has changed mm. through um through human history and it's always been based on the rising and setting of the sun mm. and within that the stars if we're talking about you know um, months and calendar time so there have been various attempts to divorce it from that, to make a sort of standard hour with like sand glasses sure. um, and uh, water water clocks and so on. Um, but I think I think once once people had a clock which ticked fairly regularly, telling you the hours through a day, and it was a public clock. So everybody in that town 
was basing themselves on the same time and the same division of hours, mm. time became different. It, it became internalized in our society in a very different way. And people worked to time. People, um, people decided when their days began and ended and when um, events would take place mm. based on this, this mm. externally ticking clock rather than pretty much on a whim. Yeah. So that changed our societies. It changed, it, it, it added greater efficiencies, which, okay. and- So there's which an economy meant, shift. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, yes, definitely. So it, it, it added efficiencies in, the, in the, the energy wasted and just sort of hanging around on the off chance that you might meet somebody um, were removed to a certain extent. Um, so that, that changed the, the mindset certainly in Europe and changed how people, how people uh, organize their time. Okay, yeah. I was thinking about like, you know, in terms of creativity and, and ideas of progress and technology, there, there was a story from um, Adventures in the Anthropocene um, in relation to an engineer in, in, in Ladka, or Ladakh? Ladakh. Ladakh, yeah. Uh, who worked out a way to make artificial glaciers to store water. I mean that's quite that's a that's a that's quite a shift, isn't it, in terms of like repurposing how we creatively think about things? Because I think we've, from my perspective, I think we've been so concentrated, concentrating constantly on what can we make to consume, you know. Whereas this is this is a different way of thinking, isn't it? It's a, a philosophical mind shift. I think is that we're on the we might be on the cusp of that. Um, I think we've always tried to find solutions to our problems. Okay. That's that's how humans have survived since we were hunter-gatherers living in the savannas of Africa. Okay. We, we look for solutions to our problems. At the same time, we're also making stuff look pretty or things that, you know, necklaces to sell each other and yeah. exchange and all that. But fundamentally, we solve the problems of our survival and that's what's made us so successful. And that whether that's changing our environment to remove, you know, predatory, scary animals, which we did very successfully, and mm. they're pretty much extinct everywhere apart from sub-Saharan Africa now, um, or whether that's, um, you know, changing um, grasslands into crop producers or changing um changing a, um, a marshland into an artificial habitat, which yeah. is a city, which is completely artificial. We've mm. completely resculpted the landscape and created our own caves, which we live in, houses, which we've created our own savannas, which are our gardens. Mm. You know, we have, we have always found solutions to our problems um, and we will continue to do that. But right now we are facing an enormous challenge because we have never lived in this kind of environment, in this kind of climate, this kind of um, biodiversity loss and so on. You know, we evolved in the Pleistocene, which was mm. horrific, mm. you know, ice covered most of the world, mm. you know, well, a third of like most of Northern Europe, for example, yeah. was just a big ice sheet. We evolved in that and we spread out across the world in this horrific landscape. You know, we we're talking about Lion Man. He was created in... The kind of conditions, you know, which, I mean, I, I don't like the cold. Yeah. <laughs> There's no central heating back then, you know. Um, 
there was it's pretty much nothing growing because yeah. it was covered in snow and ice for much of the year, you know, and, and people not only survived then, they thrived, you know, beautiful artworks from that time. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, our cousins, Neanderthals, they died out. We managed to survive. They didn't die out because of the cold, but still we were able to survive that. Then we moved into this amazing, these amazing planetary conditions of the Holocene, which was much warmer conditions. It um, had uh, more CO2 in the atmosphere, which meant more plants could grow. It was, um, we had this reliable climate, you know, the monsoon would come and go at the right sort of times that we could plot, yeah. <laughs> we could rely on. Um, and it was much more pleasant. And that meant we could farm. And that's when our civilizations grew up. We've only had that for yeah, a really, yeah. really short time of human history. If you think humans have been around for perhaps 300,000 years, yeah. the Holocene has only been around for perhaps 10,000 of that. Right. And now we're moving out. We're pushing ourselves out of the Holocene into the Anthropocene, which again is going to be incredibly challenging. But instead of there being perhaps 5 million people on the planet, yeah. By the end of this century, there could be 10 or 11 billion of us on the planet. So, so that's the challenge. Enormous population, unreliable climate, very hot conditions, you know, with everything from heat waves to out of control bushfires to rising sea levels to acidic mm. oceans. Biodiversity loss, which is off the scale, we're causing the sixth mass extinction in the planet's history. Um, and resource limitations yeah. now. Yeah. It's not this plentiful world where we can just get what we want. Yeah. So um, th these are the challenges. You know, we have always survived up till now with with our incredible, innovative, our, our um, very hyper-sociality, our, um, our creative answers and solutions. Mm. Um, you know, what we're going to do now, it was, it's going to take... It's going to take a lot more. A lot more effort. A lot more effort, yeah. Well, I think I think we've covered quite a lot um, in the last half hour or so. Um, thank you so much. Um, I really, really enjoyed your book. It was it, it made me think <laughs> think a huge amount. And um, thanks for coming on to the Liberia podcast. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been great. It's been great to talk to you. Brilliant certainly gives you perspective when discussing the human capacity for creative ingenuity to both survive and thrive. Brilliant stuff from my guest, Gaia Vince. Head to secondhome.io for full listings and assorted news and podcasts. See you next time.